0: You can be seated. Again, good morning and welcome. My name is George Davis. Some of you are new. We're delighted to welcome you. We're currently in this journey through the gospel of Mark leading up to Easter where we're, we're understanding what it means to follow Jesus and all that it entails. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask you if you've got a Bible to join with me in turning to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We've now reached the point where, where Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem uh, with his disciples. And this morning we're going to see there's very, really a, an important lesson that they're going to learn as they're now in the precincts of Jerusalem proper. To introduce this uh, text to you, let me tell you one of the most awkward conversations that I think I've had in my life. I don't know if in the back of your mind there's, there's a running tally of conversations that were awkward. But for me, one of the awkward conversations in my life came as I was a doctoral student and I had been working on my thesis, my dissertation, my supervisor had been away on study leave for about three months and I hadn't seen him and while he had been gone, I'd been busily working on the draft of my second chapter of my project and and I had it in somewhat of rough draft form. I knew parts of it were really rough. I knew parts of the argument Argue, You know, they were kind of forced, but, but I was hoping that once I met with him, we could just clear up all of these problems. So he set a time to meet, and, and as we met together, he just started going page by page through that draft. And, and I noticed, I mean, every page was just bleeding red. And as we went section by section, he kept raising the same concerns Structurally. Over and over again about how I'd put this material together. And finally, after hearing the same themes over and over again, page after page, about 45 minutes into our conversation, I just looked at him and I go, I think I need to start over, don't I? (laughs) And he, he cracked half a smile and simply said, Yes, Mr. Davis, you do. And I was, ah! I mean, here I was, you know, I was holding in my hands three months of work. And, you know, I'd come into this meeting just hoping that maybe there were some simple modifications that could be made. But he showed me it needed to be dismantled, right? I was hoping for just some simple revisions. But I was realizing it actually needed to be rebuilt built from the ground up. And I think sometimes we go through situations like that in life and situations where for me to move forward, certain things have to be taken down. Perhaps you've been in a place where for you to move forward in life, there's certain beliefs, certain attitudes, certain styles of interaction, certain patterns of behavior that had to be left behind, that had to be dismantled. And as I said this morning, we've reached this point where Jesus has now arrived in Jerusalem with his disciples. Like tens of thousands of pilgrims coming into the city, they have arrived to celebrate the Jewish feast of Passover. Yet in coming to celebrate, Jesus has also come to die. And he's been talking very directly with his disciples all along the way. And we've heard those conversations over the last couple of weeks leading into Jerusalem, the lessons that he is trying to teach. And now that he is in Jerusalem, there's one more lesson that they must learn. And that is this for them to understand who Jesus is, to understand his word, to understand what it means to follow you need to also understand that there's certain approaches to life that must be dismantled. For the disciples, this means learning to think differently, learning to engage life differently. And for you and me, this means that as we pay attention to Jesus, we may have to acknowledge, you know, I thought when I became a Christian that God was simply going to bring minor tweaks to my life. But now I'm learning through the work of his spirit. Now I'm learning in the context of community. Now I'm learning through the presence of his grace in my life that he is working to transform me from the ground up. And are you open to that? To show you what Jesus is dismantling, let's now come to the middle of Mark chapter 11. As I said, Jesus has already come into the city. He's arrived as a humble king. And we pick up the story in verse 12 of chapter 11. While Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was actually staying overnight in Bethany, just east of the city of Jerusalem. So the next day, he's coming back into the city proper. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, can we just be honest here? Of all the stories in the Gospels, isn't this one of the most bizarre? Right? For those of you that have been following along, wasn't there a part this week that you kind of just scratch your head? What is he doing? What do you mean getting upset at a a tree, particularly a tree that's not even supposed to be in season, right? I mean, Mark says it's not the season for figs, and he curses the tree. Let's be honest. If I gave you the details of this story without mentioning names, you would say, well, somebody's got an anger issue, right? And isn't it the case, some of us who are parents, we would say, well, that's the kind of behavior I'm trying to discipline out of my kids. And yet, look at this in the life of Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, to answer that, we've got to keep reading. Because this is, this is another one of those cases in Mark's gospel. And we've seen this before. This is another one of those cases where Mark weaves two stories together, right? He, he tells kind of, he starts one story, then he moves to a second story, then he concludes the first story. And what he does by that is show you that to understand these stories, you've got to kind of put them together and see what they have in common, see kind of the common themes. And this is another one of those places. So to understand the fig story, you have to actually read the next scene, the next story where Jesus is in the temple. Of course, in some ways, it feels like we're, we're only going from bad to worse because as we continue reading, look what happens in the temple. We'll pick up at verse 15. So now here's the second story, right? On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots, and Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So notice, we go from the temple back to the fig tree, so you see how these stories are connected. So to understand really that fig tree story, let's start by understanding what's going on in the temple. What is Jesus doing? And why is he disrupting all the activity, right? Right? I mean, it almost feels like he's just having a bad day. I mean, first there's the tree, then there are the people in the temple. So what's going on here? Well, as you see Jesus kind of disrupting the activity in the temple, there, there are actually two activities going on in the temple. First, there's a reference to the money changers. And these would have been people engaged in financial tra- transactions because as, as individuals, I mean, Tens of thousands of people were, were coming for this feast, and it was required of Jewish males to pay a temple tax. So people from all different places were coming. They were exchanging money so that they could pay the temple tax. And there's also a reference, right, to the purchase of doves, to the purchase of, of animals that in different ways would be used in the sacrifices of the temple. So why, why is Jesus disrupting, disrupting this activity? I think our first thought, our immediate thought is, well, he's disrupting it because of corruption. And undoubtedly this was was taking place, that in the midst of all these financial transactions, people were making money at the cost of others. There was undoubtedly some corruption in the system. So I think that's part of what Jesus is doing here. I mean, it's, a, it's an action against injustice. It's an action against those who have, taking advantage of those who don't. But, but if we stop here, I don't think we fully understood what Jesus is doing. To fully understand what Jesus is dismantling, what he is overturning, pay attention to the two Old Testament quotations here. Notice, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now start with that phrase, den of robbers. And once again, I think our first, our mind immediately goes to, well, he's talking about corruption, right? He's talking about the fact that people are taking advantage of others in the temple. And I know that that's the image that that phraseology kind of stirs up within us, but that's not actually the meaning of that phrase. Because here's what you need to understand. When you you talk about a den of robbers... The den is not the place where the crime happens. The den is the place where the robbers go to hide. This becomes even more clear when we go back to the original context of this quote, which we find in Jeremiah chapter 7. Let me show that to you. And Jeremiah, this prophet, he's writing a time, and and his message in Jeremiah 7 is, is one of judgment and Warning, because here's what Jeremiah is seeing. He's seeing very a very great busyness of activity in the temple, but he's like, people, you know, all the the temple is full, all the activities are going on, but it's but none of this is changing people's lives. I mean, notice what he says. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which bears my name, and say, well, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? Do you get the warning Jeremiah is giving in this kind of prophetic proclamation? It's sometimes referred to as the temple sermon. People are acting like, you know what, as long as we got the temple, We'll come to the temple, we do our religious activity, and, and, and out here we can, we can just do whatever we want. But let me give you kind of another visual of that. Think about, you know, you got kids, or you remember being a kid. Remember playing the game of tag? You know, maybe you went to, you were at a local playground, and you got some friends with you, we're going to play tag, and somebody's it, and, and home base is like the pole on the swing set. And so, it, you know, it doesn't matter where you run or what you do, And it doesn't matter how much you mouth off to the other kids. Sometimes some of us we did that growing up. Yeah, come on, come on, you know. And none of that matters as long as I can get to the pole, right? Because when I'm at the pole, I'm safe. It's base. And what Jeremiah is saying, you guys, you're treating the temple like it's, it's, you know, it's just base. And it doesn't matter what you do out here. doesn't matter what you say. doesn't matter how you engage other people. It doesn't matter if you worship other gods. It doesn't matter if you take advantage of those who have less than you do. As long as you go to the temple, you feel like you're safe. And centuries later, what Jesus is doing, he's looking around. And I mean, the temple court, there are tens of thousands of people in the temple at this moment. And Jesus is seeing the same thing. He's seeing religious busyness. He's issuing a warning, a a word of judgment against those who feel like, as long as I come and do this sacrifice stuff on the inside of the temple, it doesn't matter what I do on the outside of the temple. They're just going through the motions. And so Jesus says, look, you've you've turned this place into a den of robbers. You're just going through the motions. And one of the results of that is that you have lost a sense of mission. You've lost a sense of purpose. Notice again, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And again, it's helpful to see the broader context in which that quote comes from. This is from Isaiah chapter uh, 56 where we read these words, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And what we're reading here is, Isaiah, looking to the future, has this sense of anticipation that what this plan that God is bringing about through the nation of Israel actually has much broader implications because this plan of restoration and renewal is ultimately to bring together people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of ethnic and geographical locations. Therefore, Israel's calling foundationally was a calling of mission. And now Jesus is looking around, and he sees all this busyness and activity, and he says people are just going through the motions, and one of the results is that they've lost sense that they're part of something bigger. They've lost sense of mission, and I think this was actually taking place in a very physical way where Jesus was standing because you see most likely this disruption is taking place in what was referred to as the court of the Gentiles, This was the only part of the temple where Gentiles were allowed to come in and pray. And there's some evidence that for the sake of convenience, some of the financial transactions for sacrifices for the exchange of money had had been moved into the court of the Gentiles, just so it'd be more convenient for for other worshipers. And in a real sense, it's quite possible that that in in a physical way, Gentiles were literally being pushed out of the court of the Gentiles for the convenience of others. So Jesus looks around, and he just sees busyness. But he says it's disconnected from the way you're actually living. And as a result, you've lost the sense that your life is to be part of this bigger missional story of what God is doing. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, I think as we look closer at the scene, there's one more thing to notice. And that is this. In doing what he does in the temple and disrupting, right, these transactions and the religious activity, Jesus isn't simply saying something about the people around him. He's also saying something about his role. Jacob Neusner is a, a highly respected Jewish scholar, and his area of expertise is really Judaism in the ancient world. And he's made a fascinating observation. He's basically said this. He said, when you read a story like this, he said, the only reason someone would disrupt this activity in the temple like Jesus is doing, the only reason you would do that in this context is if you believed you were overturning the sacrificial system and bringing about something that was to go in its place. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Because his his actions in the temple, they're, they're not simply prophetic acts of judgment and warning. They're also acts of anticipation and hope. They're acts that represent the ultimate sacrifice is now coming. The ultimate sacrifice will be seen on the cross. The ultimate sacrifice will truly bring forgiveness, reconciliation, renewal, and healing. So this, this is what Jesus is doing in the temple. Now let's go back to that first story, okay? And let's see how they go together. Let's see how the temple story and the fig story go together. And I think when you, when you look at them in tandem, here's what you begin to see. You see an emphasis On a lack of fruit. Now I realize, I realize, Mark says that well, you know, it wasn't the season for figs. But there's more to the story than that because you need to understand this: the the main season for figs was in the fall, and that's that's what Paul, uh, that's what Mark is describing here. But the reality is, in the spring, fig trees begin to leaf, and when they leaf, they usually develop spring buds, sometimes referred to as spring figs, and these were edible and what Jesus's action was showing was you know the tree was giving every indication that it was bearing those spring buds but when you got close to it when you actually turned the leaves over there was no fruit and so when you put this story together with the temple story you see commonality between the two because whether it's the beauty of the leaves or it's the busyness in the temple The commonality is the lack of fruit. And so, what these prophetic acts do this cursing of the fig tree, this disruption in the temple they're Jesus' warnings against religious hypocrisy, they are warnings against busyness that doesn't lead to fruitfulness. And Jesus looks at this way of life and he says, you know what, this this isn't what God intended. This isn't the way you were designed to live. This isn't what human flourishing looks like. And ultimately, I think what Jesus is telling us is this. He did not come to help us with leaf management. He came. So that we could bear fruit, now just let that sink in again, <laughs> and, and because I think as it, as it sinks in, it can feel weighty, it can feel heavy, because at times I look at my life and it feels like there's a, you know, there's a lot more, there are a lot more leaves than fruit. At times, I really see that hypocrisy in my own life, and, and yet Jesus is warning against it, and Jesus is telling me God has a different vision for my life. I was, I was kind of reminded of this in a, in a dramatic way this week. I'm part of a pastor's network, and our network meets every year at this time, so we were meeting this week on the west coast, and being on the west coast gave me the opportunity to spend a couple of days with our son, who's now in Seattle, and the two of us were traveling, and as we were traveling, we actually came across a rather interesting building project. Let me show you this. This is actually a building project in Victoria, Canada. And you, and you walk up down the street and you see this, and your first thought is, wow, they're, just make, they're, they're making some improvements to the outside of the building. And as I looked at that, I was thinking about this text, and I thought, you know, sometimes this is, this is kind of my vision for my life. This is what God, I want God to do. I pray, God, just make this stuff on the outside go well. Make the circumstances go well. And maybe if I've got some, you know, hard stuff with other people, give me the right words to say. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, it, sometimes my vision is just make the stuff on the outside go well. The interesting thing about this building project is when you get to the other side of the street, when you get to the back, it turns out it's a totally different project than you anticipated. They've actually gutted the building from the foundation up. And I realized that's God's vision for my life. That's what he's doing. Through the power of his spirit and the work of his grace, he, he is rebuilding me from the ground up. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The author, he said, uh, he said, God comes into your life as a believer, and he seeks to rebuild you from the ground up because he is building a place for his presence to dwell. But once again, <laughs> when you think along these lines, that feels heavy and weighty, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus has this powerful warning, this dramatic warning, not just simply in words but in actions against religious hypocrisy, and it feels weighty for me to hear that because I see it in my own life. I know he's got a different vision, but sometimes that vision seems so much an ideal and not a reality. So this warning seems weighty, and yet notice that this scene doesn't ultimately end with warning. It ends with hope. Pick up at verse 22. Verse 22. After all this unfolds, Jesus says this. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Notice this very clearly. After these dramatic warnings against religious hypocrisy, Jesus' message is not, you know what, you need to try harder. Jesus' message is not, you know what, you really need to be more, in con- you need to be more consistent. Jesus' message is not, you know, you really, you gotta, you just got to do more. After these dramatic messages of warning and judgment, Against religious hypocrisy, Jesus' message is this: Have faith in God." It's like he looks at you and he looks at me and he says this, "I know what I've just done is weighty and heavy." I know these actions, these words are weighty and heavy, yet you need to understand the reality of what I am doing. You need to understand the forgiveness, the renewal, the restoration, the transformation that will become a reality through my work on the cross. Have faith in God. And I think at a practical level, Jesus then mentions two things, right? It's this have faith in God. I want, I want the gospel to take root in your life in such a way. that more and more there's integrity in who you are. Have faith in God. And and Jesus gives us really two practical dimensions of what this will look like in the life of a a Christ follower. First of all, notice the emphasis on prayer, right? Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believe that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, this this statement about moving a mountain um, is really a proverbial statement about the power of God. It's a proverbial statement reminding us that things that we may think are impossible are actually possible with him. We may think, you know what, I can't really change but God can bring about transformation. We may think, you know, there are certain relationships I can never engage well, but God can bring about a new approach. We may think, I can never get beyond my past and and certain things that I've done or certain things that have happened to me, but, but God can bring about healing. Interestingly, throughout the book, there's a contrast between faith and fear, And I think the expectation is this, as as we follow Christ, that journey is going to bring certain fears, certain questions to the surface. Can I really trust him? Can I take him seriously in hard situations or is this just a waste of time? And and Jesus is saying in in those situations, an important part of of bearing fruit is prayer. Prayer. In fact, Jesus endorses prayer in a very radical way, right? Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you uh, have received and it will be yours. Now understand this this isn't a blank check that Jesus is writing because we have to remember the context. The context is this. We are seeing how Mark is describing Jesus coming to establish his kingdom. Jesus has entered Jerusalem only at the beginning of this chapter as a humble king. And through his work, we become part of his kingdom, his rescue plan, which he calls the kingdom of God. And our allegiance, our our prayers are now to be aligned with his work and his mission. So this statement isn't a blank check, but I think what it is, is it's the assurance that God is more able and more willing to accomplish his work in our lives than we can fully understand or imagine. So Jesus is saying, look, I don't want you to get stuck simply in a way you're concerned about the leaves. I don't want you to get stuck in religious hypocrisy. I want you to have faith in God, and an important dynamic in that is, is prayer. But then he also talks about action. I mean, notice right at the end, he highlights the importance of forgiveness. And, and why, does he, why does he do that? Because I think he does it for this reason, because forgiveness is a sign that the gospel is taking root in my life. Forgiveness and forgiving others is a sign that I'm learning and appropriating the reality of the gospel in such a way that it is bearing fruit in how I engage other people. So Jesus says, look, I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be stuck in a religious hypocrisy. I want you to have faith. And God, have faith in the work that I'm about to do on the cross. And in a practical way, that means I want you to pray. And I want you to take action steps that reflect your confidence in the gospel. So let's just, just think for a moment about what this can look like personally. Maybe right now for you, in some sense, it feels like your life has gotten off track. Maybe it's just been really busy, and some of your priorities, some of the things that need to be important to you, haven't been. Maybe through the busyness, there is a relationship or certain relationships that you've neglected. Or maybe there are certain unhealthy or sinful patterns of thinking and behavior that have become part of your life. And you thought the patterns weren't a big deal, you thought the busyness wasn't a big deal but now you're dealing with the consequences. And you now realize it. And you know, often in these situations, I, I, probably our gut response is, is often, how do I justify myself? How do I defend myself? Maybe even making excuses even to ourselves and we play these tapes over and over again. I downplay the damage perhaps that I've done. I put the blame on other people and, Maybe I simply do this internally, but what I'm engaging in is simply an act of leaf management. But Jesus is saying, don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck in religious hypocrisy. Rather, have faith in me. Trust that my work truly brings about forgiveness, healing, Renewal and restoration. So don't just try to handle this on your own. Pray and pray with openness. Pray with an expectation that God can be at work in you and around you. Pray with an openness where you confess what you need to confess before God. Pray with an openness where you acknowledge those fears that in this situation may hold you back. Pray in a way that, acknowledge who God, that acknowledges who God is and what he's doing. So if that's where you're at, just Here Jesus is challenged to pray, to pray with a sense of honesty, but also a sense of expectation that God can be at work in that situation. And then take action. Take action steps that flow out of the gospel. Take action steps in that relationship that maybe I've handled the wrong way. Take action steps in those situations where my busyness perhaps has interfered with my responsibility to others and just acknowledge that. Take action steps that flow out of the gospel. We began just a few minutes ago by talking about that thesis chapter, that awkward conversation. And about my realization that what i thought could perhaps get by actually had to be dismantled and rebuilt from the ground up and for some of us here maybe it feels like you're in that season of life right now maybe there're things in your life that god is dismantling maybe he's dismantling your self-sufficiency Maybe he's dismantling certain attitudes. Maybe he's brought you a point where certain behaviors have come to light. And although it is painful, it's actually God's grace. Because he's telling you he wants to deal with them. Maybe he's dismantling your desire for control. And these can be painful seasons. These can be seasons where our gut instinct is I just want to preserve the leaves. (laughs) I just want the leaves to look good. I just want people to see the leaves. But remember, the goal of the good news of Christ. The goal of His grace, forgiveness, restoration, and healing is not to help you with leaf management. The goal is that your life, my life, might bear fruit. And that's the lesson. Of this weird scene in the life of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, once again, I acknowledge we come to these scenes in Mark chapter 11, and they do strike us as odd. They strike us as different, even bizarre. And yet when we understand how they go together, when we understand what's going on, we see the reality that Jesus is confronting religious hypocrisy. And not only is he confronting it, he's ultimately acknowledging the work that he will accomplish on the cross on our behalf. And so, Father, may that scene just bring to mind the reality that in following you, there are certain things that need to be dismantled. Certain things that must be left behind. And I pray we'd be open to that truth. Father, may we understand that Jesus hasn't come just to help us look good. <laughs> he hasn't helped us. He hasn't come just so the leaves will look good. He's come that our lives may bear fruit. Father, may we embrace that truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.